This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With every man in his time plays many parts. We usually present an actual play of develop mode from Invisible Sun. We have a bit of a twist on the spell this week. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With every man in his time plays many parts. Uh, we usually do an actual play, uh, which Scott had alluded to in the uh, beginning of our show. Uh, this time around, we're actually going to be talking about a, well, mostly a woman with hollow eyes. And we're going to touch on uh, the Raven wants what you have uh, as we talk about these actual plays that are going on right now that you can tune into. Uh, both of them are streaming. Uh, both of them are streaming on Twitch, but then they also have uh, archived video on YouTube that you can watch or on their Twitch channels. So um, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, both of these. So uh, let's let's get right into it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna start up with a woman with hollow eyes because I have been sitting down and watching this stream go on for. Oh, like 10 hours now, I think I'm into. Uh, I've just got through episode three, and I've got about four more episodes to catch up on uh, because I actually have to talk to the GM a little bit, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm responsible for helping her come up with some ideas for one of the development modes that's going to be going on. Uh, so, hey, Scott, do you know what a woman with hollow eyes is? I do. I also have watched a little bit, but not as much as you have. Uh, I watched the first, I think, two episodes, uh, depending on whether you count some of their early development modes as separate episodes or not. Uh, so I, I have, I will be able to, to talk a little bit about the uh, way it's presented and some of the tone, uh, though I am not... Um, conversant with each of the characters and uh, where the story arcs are, even up to episode four. Uh, yeah, and I've been... Well, it's all pretty fresh in my mind right now, uh, but I, I think we should probably go over what this thing is. I don't think we really told our audience what the, what the show is. Uh, a Woman with Hollow Eyes is a series that the One Shot RPG Network is putting together. Uh, the it's, it's being run by Darcy Ross as the GM, and there are three players, three characters who are uh, recurring throughout the series. You've got uh, James D'Amato, who is playing a weaver called Calvin. Uh, you've got Cat Cool, who is playing a goetic called Kitty Hart. And then you have Alan Linick, who is playing a maker called Wayne. Um, so th as of this recording, which is, uh, hmm, I don't know, we don't, I don't know what our dates are. Uh, as of the release of this episode on March... I have reason to remember that it's Friday, March 16th. Yeah. So uh, as of the airing of this episode on March 16th, there are, I believe, seven episodes of um, what's what's the mode that we want to call this by? 
not development mode. There are, there are seven episodes where uh, the whole crew, for the most part, is around the table and uh, role playing and having a full session. Uh, there are also several other development mode sessions that you can tune in on. Um, I believe most of them are on their Twitch channel. Uh, and they're well worth uh, taking a look at as well. Uh, but there will be links in the show notes to where you can find all of the videos for this. And I I would recommend watching this thing. It's it's entertaining, which the One Shot Network usually, like always is. I've been listening to... Uh, campaign for uh, like two years now, and it's it is it is always good and always entertaining. Um, so, with a woman with hollow eyes, I wanted to sort of dig more into uh, what you might be able to learn from it, both as a player, but more as a GM, uh, which is usually how I'm looking at these things. Um, and then I'll also touch on a little bit of what I think you should keep an eye out for and some of the stuff that I think makes it really interesting and highlights why the invisible sun setting is, is pretty neat. Uh, so uh, let's dive right into it. Um, so Darcy is the GM for this uh, series and Darcy's a really good GM. Uh, I've been able to play in a handful of games that she's run now. Um, she was actually, I think, the first or second uh, GM that I had for a Monty Cook event. Uh, she ran The Strange for us like four years ago or something. I forget exactly when it was. Um, but uh, her style has been pretty consistent uh, from when I first had that game that she ran for us. And, and she has a really interesting style. And I think it works really well with the One Shot Network. And... Uh, it's something that I'm going to be considering as I run Invisible Sun for my table. And the thing she does that I think is really interesting is that she asks a lot of questions. And she doesn't, there are times when she does do a lot of uh, narration and exposition, but a lot of her role for this show has been um, asking the table for more information, for more details, for ideas. Um, and it's something that we've talked about, which is, you know, sourcing the table for uh, things to fill out the narrative that you're, that you're going through with your characters. Um, so is that something you've been doing with your playtest, Scott, like more than you've done with other games that you've played before? Yes. Uh, I've been doing more of that with my playtest. Uh, I have to say it, it required some adjustment. The players were more accustomed to traditional games where the GM was the center and the narrator for most of the events. And so it took some time for players to become willing to answer your questions in more than a minimal way. I think there was a presumption by some of the players that to add details would be to be taking on the the rights of the GM to define the world. And uh, it took a while for those the players to be comfortable that they also share rights in defining the world and that the questions are intended to help flesh out the world. So it took some time, but it's something I definitely emphasized. It's something that's emphasized in the game itself. Uh, and you can see in A Woman with Hollow Eyes and the other podcast we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, how much player involvement there is and how it might be different than what you see in a lot of other more traditional RPGs. And is that something you find is easier to handle in Invisible Sun? 
I don't know if it's necessarily easier to handle. Uh, I think that easier to handle than, say, in the Cypher system. It is certainly easier than it would have been if I tried that, that style with, say, Dungeons & Dragons or something like that when I that I used mm-hmm. to run quite a bit. Uh, I think it's similarly difficult or easy uh, to run as it would be in the Cypher system because of the, the difficulty level rules and kind of how task difficulty works in both of those games. However, Invisible Sun did do, I think, a better job of priming players to be prepared to contribute to the world. And Session Zero has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I was going to say, Session Zero seems like the thing that would get you set up so that the the players have a lot of ownership over that. Um, another thing that Darcy does is she uh, relies on the, the players to come up with, I was trying to think of the right term for it, but curveballs that show up in the story. And I'm not sure if it's it's accurate to say she relies on them, but they tend to introduce curveballs into the story, which then she will pick it up and just sort of, you know, carry it forward and continue bringing those sorts of weird quirks into the story along with them, which, you know, that's, that's, that's fun and neat. Uh, And there are a couple of examples, like the, the biggest one I think would be uh, Wayne's spoon man desire who gets, absorbed in i think episode two uh he keeps showing up and uh that was something that uh alan and james just sort of uh, it happened off a magical flux and they decided to just run with it a little bit and embellish it and now that thing is starting to show up again which is uh pretty entertaining so the the callbacks like that are really neat especially when they're too uh you know player created details there are several examples of that in our play tests that I think are that suggest it's something that's going to be inherent to the way the game plays. Uh, whether it was uh, a, an example of where a, a player introduced a part of the world in uh, character advancement, uh, she learned a spell, and so we tried to figure out how she would learn the spell. And in the, in that discussion, uh, it introduced new elements of the world that became parts of the story moving forward. Uh, and several times the sort of strange explanations for things that happen procedurally in the story that could very easily have faded into the background if we just we didn't find them interesting became mm-hmm. repeating elements in the story so i think that's going to be something that's common in invisible sun games yeah and that that touches on another note that i had which was um this is more of a note for players which is i guess it would be players and gms like the the characters have uh histories and stories that the the players have put together and played through, but they, they allow those stories to be flexible and malleable and they change that, you know, history that they had put together earlier and they allow it to be reinterpreted as the narrative changes. And this is something that I think you're seeing with uh, Calvin's character. Uh, He starts off as a, Mm, he starts off as a very naive uh, character in in the game. He's new to Saturn. Uh, he's not really familiar with what's going on here. And uh, as the story is unfolding, I'm not sure how much of this has been planned. I'm, I guess, I'm assuming that not much of it has because, hey, you know, I'm I'm a GM and that's usually how it goes. Um, but as the story's going on, Calvin's history and possible histories are changing and it's changing what his character appears to be. 
and everybody's just, you know, rolling with it, which allowing your character to be reinterpreted, um, you know, you might've had this initial idea of what your character is and what they're going to be like, but then allowing that to change to sort of fill in the holes of the narrative that you're telling uh, is a nice, it's a nice outlook to have uh, instead of being stuck on, Hey, this is the character arc that I had for my, uh, that my character is going to be going through. And I'm, I don't want to change it. I just want to do that arc. So it's cool to see that thing uh, evolving over the course of the story. And there were hints of this through the development of the game itself. I don't mean the actual play, but Invisible Sun, where there are references first to the bodily transformation of characters and how the physical forms of characters could change over time. But I don't think we appreciated during the Kickstarter early on how much the game will be focused on the evolution of characters over time. And the character arcs is really just part of a system that anticipates that characters will be changing in significant ways uh, over time, rather than simply getting bigger bonuses at what they do or Mm -hmm. slight variations on the powers that they have. You might have dramatic changes in the ethos and character of your characters uh, as they move through. And I think most recently in one of the design diaries we discussed, the character uh, uh, sheets uh, are going to have multiple uh, spaces for the GM so so that they can record how these big changes happen to the point where every half dozen or so sessions, it is anticipated that you basically have to reassess where all the characters are uh, and how that affects and interacts with the story because uh, they anticipate that much change going on. Yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting. And I just remembered something. Well, I didn't remember something. I was just thinking of something else that kind of goes in line with this. Um, well, I mean, it doesn't go in line with this. Uh, it was something else that I noticed while watching this. When they, when they set up a scene, one of the things that I, I appreciate as a GM, uh, the players, if they are, if they don't start the scene together, they usually try to work some. They try to work towards a point that the characters would naturally cross paths. So they're trying to get the characters back together so that everybody can be involved and play at the table. I mean, yeah, there are still some scenes that involve just one of the characters, and then they, you know, they get to focus on that character for a while. But a lot of the scenes, they they start off in separate locations, but they come up with some sort of excuse uh, as players to put their characters together and see how those characters are going to, you know, tackle the problems that they're facing and interact with each other, which I really appreciate that. <laughs> this is where it helps to be in a ultra high magic world. Yeah, uh, super high magic uh, and communicating with other people. Well, if you have a maker, you can set something up. So you should be able to do that pretty easily. Uh, another thing that I, I guess I'm taking this as a note for me as a GM is that the players really get to live in their characters. And this might be more of a one shot uh, style and how they play, you know, role-playing games. They'll get into character and they'll just improvise scenes and they are very comfortable doing that sort of thing. Cause a lot of them have, uh, improvisational backgrounds. Uh, Alan Linick is in second city and I don't know, uh, what James and cat have done previously, but I wouldn't be surprised if they've also done improv trading like that. Um, but they will just, 
you know, get into character, talk with each other, talk about the the problems that they're going through. They'll come up with problems for the scene. Uh, and, you know, you can watch Darcy during these things and she just sits back and she watches them, uh, observes what they're talking about. And you can see her GM instincts kick in at a certain point where she will say, okay, I think this is the end of the scene and we're going to wrap it up here and move on to something else. Or she might have something that she wants to introduce like a, um, not a GM intrusion. What, what is it? Invisible sun shift, a GM shift. Yeah. She'll, she'll introduce a shift or they'll have the, the audience step in and, and do something. Uh, but that's, that's something that I've started doing a bit more recently. And I think the best way to continue fostering, uh, you know, fostering the environment for my players to be comfortable to just play out a scene is sit even further back and just continue observing because I find that to be really interesting to watch my players, you know, play out their characters and just sort of riff on each other. Yeah. It's worth noting that it's important to remember for all of us, normal humans that uh, in many cases, the people on actual play streams, including uh, this one have professional, um, mm -hmm. improv training, if not being professional improv actors uh, at, at, at a specific time. And so don't expect all tables to really work the same way. And these <laughs> might be aspirational targets, uh, but there's no reason to feel guilty if your table isn't as active uh, at participating, if they don't fall into their character quite as quickly as the people in the streams do. Uh, remember, these are, in many cases, professionally trained improvisational actors who, through the Kickstarter, uh, are funded <laughs> uh, to create this actual play. Um, so I, I believe it's, it, it is entertaining. Uh, it is a useful guide. Uh, but don't use it as your benchmark that anything you do that doesn't quite resemble this is not playing right or playing well. Yeah, and, it, and it's more of a... Um... My, my players seem to be enjoying uh, just, you know, goofing around as their characters a little bit more. And I think that we could do that, you know, I think we could do that a bit more easily with this game because the character is going to be more than just I'm a barbarian. <laughs> and I wonder also, my, my um, playtest has been online through Rule 20. Mm-hmm. And that may have limited some of the interaction because people aren't in the same room. I think... It, uh, if you really want to focus on improvisational interactions between the player characters and to have opportunities for the GM to step back and allow the scene to play out as people really dive into their characters, uh, it's, it's going to be much better to be in the same physical location to allow people to you know, look at each other directly and interact. Uh, it'll be harder to pull that off with a roll 20 uh, sort of distance game. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, one other thing I wanted to note was the, uh, the way that they jump between scenes, they, they do skip fairly large chunks of time, at least how I'm used to, uh, time progressing in, in the games that I've run. And like, I definitely want to take advantage of that for this game because there are a lot of activities, um, that, you know, the characters can get up to when they're. Uh, skipping between scenes. Um, makers can be putting uh, artifacts together. Uh, 
Goetics could be, you know, looking into uh, creatures and demons that they want to be uh, putting together deals with. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen there. Uh, you know, I guess people who have orders might be trying to uh, work their way up those in that downtime. And of course, there's always exploring the menu of the dumpling house. That's true. Yeah, we could just <laughs> hang out at the dumpling house and uh, do side scenes and then fill all the details in with development mode. <laughs> um, so a couple things that I want to touch on with this this actual play. Um, so this this actual play is really neat. I've been enjoying it. Um, I've talked a bit about Calvin. Uh, and when I first started tuning in, I was a bit apprehensive about his character arc uh, because the, con- the, the concept behind his character at first was he's new to Saturn and doesn't know what's going on. And I was like, oof, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work because um, it sounds like it might turn into a story about somebody figuring out how the actuality works. Um, and that is kind of happening, but the, the story is, is evolving in a way that I think is really interesting. Uh, and I'm not really going to get into the details of why that is, but it, I think it's really starting to uh, pick up and take on some interesting uh, facets now that I'm through episode three. Um, yeah, this yeah, is a, a point where screenwriting te- uh, techniques and the game uh, kind of diverge in that if you're pl- if you think of this actual play as being uh, an, a, a storytelling, then a lot of storytelling advice would be that you want a point of view character and that the natural starting point for a new setting would be to follow a point of view character as you uh, use this novelty as an excuse to uh you know, explain the setting to this point of view character. It's a common trope in movies and things like mm-hmm. that. So it's, it's common screenplay technique, but the invisible sun game uh, basically recommends not doing that, that instead just jump right in uh, play as if people are more or less familiar with the setting. And because it's, it's not intended uh, and the mechanics are not designed to tell the story of, tr- of the transition from the gray uh, into the actuality. Uh, so you, I think we in this, uh, you see sort of the tension between how the game was designed to not emphasize that transition to some traditional storytelling and screenplay techniques that would suggest you absolutely want to emphasize that. Um, and so you, you just might see that tension in this uh, case, but it seems to be playing out just fine. Uh, yeah, it's it's been really entertaining. Uh, and they do cover the transition that he has uh, from gray to the actuality in one of their development mode sessions, which was really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also got a, a really cool villain uh, in, in the game. Uh, his name is uh, Daniel McPherson. And he's, he's a cool villain because he gets to interact with the characters. They've had conversations with him. They know he's up to no good. Um, but they are having difficulty deal with, dealing with him because of the leverage that he has over one of the characters. And it's, it's really neat to see a villain get to have conversations with the characters. And he's not like, I mean, he's a bad dude and he's uh, up to no good, but he's, he's, it's fun to see the group actually be able to interact with him in a way that isn't just, all right, I guess now we're going to fight him. So uh, having having a villain like that in one of my campaigns would be nice to have again. And I think Invisible Sun 
really helps tell those sorts of stories because it's not a system that focuses on building a character in order to optimize for combat that you can then uh, run up and punch the dragon in the nose or, or whatever it might be uh, and vanquish your foe and move along to the next story. It's built around character relationships. And so having an antagonist with a continued presence and a direct relationship with the, uh, the player characters makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of his weight came from their session zero and a lot of the hooks that they put into him came from there. So the players have a lot of investment into him and having him show up and, and be around and be a problem is, is something that they're, they're facilitating as well, which is, is really cool. Um, there's another really cool character that, uh, has shown up once I'm guessing this character has shown up in one of the development mode sessions, uh, that I haven't caught up on, but, um, at, uh, Kitty Hart's bar, which I can't remember the name of the place that she works. There is a bartender there called Moxie and Moxie is basically a Muppet and he tends bar there. And, uh, the way that Alan Linick portrays Moxie is, absolutely fantastic. And, uh, I mean, he really captures the spirit of Muppets in, in a way that I haven't seen on a stream before. Uh, so Moxie will be wiping the bar down, but in a way that a, only a Muppet could, which is like flopping on the bar and dragging its body across the bar with a rag, even though its arm is on a stick. Uh, and whenever he takes money for, uh, drinks at the bar, um, like Muppets don't have pockets, so they have to eat that stuff. And, uh, that's, that's really great. And that's one of the things that you're going to get from one shot. Um, I guess that's probably the, uh, goofiest thing that I've seen in the stream and everything else has been, uh, much more grounded than that. In this stream and in the other example, I think goofiness is likely to be common in this game. Mm -hmm. And that for all of the sort of dark imagery and surrealism, uh, it, uh, there's still a lot of space for goofiness uh, to the taste of the of the player characters. And so that's worth uh, considering. And again, just knowing that this is this is perfectly valid way to play the game and have fun with it, uh, even if you've got this sometimes hyper realistic or serious art, uh, you can still have your Muppet bartenders. And I think if we have T-shirts, the first nominee for a, a phrase must be Muppets don't have pockets. Muppets don't have pockets. Uh, so, Scott, why don't you tell me uh, a little bit about the Raven has or nope, the Raven wants what you have. Right. I've only started to watch this. It's a, it's a more recently launched uh, uh, actual play podcast. The, uh, the Raven wants what you have also airs on Twitch, uh, and is then archived and made more, uh, widely available through YouTube. This actual play is actually hosted by the Monty Cook games crew themselves. So you have as the player characters, uh, Darcy, uh, Sean, Bruce, and Shauna, the, some of the core team at Monty Cook games with Monty running the game as GM. The first uh, session is actually the session zero where they go through the creation of the characters and in particular their neighborhoods and the relationships between the characters. And as of our recording, uh, there have really only been two e uh, episodes that have focused on story and action mode. Uh, though these are numbers 2.1 and 2.2. So I bet they were recorded more or less back to back and represent in some sense um, a 
single story arc. It's just divided in that each of these is about an hour long segment of actual play. And uh, it was interesting to see how this was similar to uh, and in ways in which this was differed from uh, a woman with hollow eyes. Uh, and they Darcy talks about this over on Cypher Speak. So mm-hmm. go check out Cypher Speak if you haven't already. It's a good show. Uh, Darcy and uh, oh, who's the other guy that's on there? I'll have to look that up in my notes somewhere. Todd. Let's go with Todd. Where is our Todd now? Darcy and Todd Pickleman. Uh, <laughs> they they run Cyberspeak, and Darcy talked about uh, how they recorded the Raven wants what you have. And I guess uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, they recorded like the whole thing over the course of a weekend. And so it, it is much briefer and more pointed because they didn't have a whole lot of time. Right. So a woman with hollow eyes is recorded over at this point, several weeks yeah. uh, and there's things happening in between and they're, they're using those weeks to prepare. So yeah, this is a much more compact recording schedule though. It does have the advantage of having the designer of the game as mm-hmm. the GM. Yeah. I want to so dip the, into it. I just have been trying to catch up on a woman with hollow eyes. Yeah. I do recommend after you have caught up on a woman with hollow eyes uh, that you do move over to the, the Raven wants what you have. My comparisons are mostly going to be based upon my limited uh, viewing of the first few recordings of A Woman with Hollow Eyes. Uh, But I did watch all of the Session Zero plus Episodes 2.1 and 2.2 of The Raven Wants What You Have. I noticed Mm -hmm. something uh, that it it seemed to me that Monty's GM style is a bit different from Darcy's. Uh, It's uh, in ways that I think are very interesting to see and useful to provide counterpoints uh, as different ways that one can validly uh, provide a great play experience with Invisible Sun. I find Monty's GM style to be much less question-based and more directive than Darcy's. Mm -hmm. That didn't surprise me coming from a more traditional RPG background where the GM uh, takes it upon uh, themselves to really push the story forward. And so I found that in most cases, the party uh, at, in the, uh, the MCG crew were, were basically interacting with the GM, with Monty. And so it became this sort of dyadic relationship where he would initiate something in the story and then direct it at someone. That person would then reply and be back and forth. And then he would move attention around and move the story around to make sure that all the different people had parts to play Mm -hmm. uh, in the game. And so it was was a a good illustration of how to share story across people uh, to make sure everyone has has a time in the spotlight and such issues. But it was in some ways more traditional than Darcy's uh, question-oriented approach because he was less likely to step back and just allow the interactions between players to, to dominate, you know, minutes upon minutes of the actual play. Uh, it was, it was, uh, and so you kind of see two different GM styles, both of which result in interesting and entertaining actual plays, as well as I'm sure, um, you know, enjoyable player experiences. Uh, it's funny because there are also times that uh, one of the players will step in and just play an NPC in a woman with hollow eyes. Um, which that's cool. Um, I, I know they do it in their other shows. Uh, and I don't know how that would work at a very traditional table, like what I've got. 
I think it could work. I've, I've had some groups where that would work just fine, actually. And I, I'm pretty sure I've done it in a very limited way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on a lot of having a lot of trust among the players and it, and the, uh, I don't know, the confidence to step up and, and have that improvisational role for the other players. Well, I've got two other GMs that play at my table. So if I just turn to one of them and say, all right, you take this NPC uh, and here's a note that tells you, like, what are they trying to get out of this? Uh, I think that would be enough for them to, you know, do something like that. Yeah. One one other thing I noticed that's actually similar across these two streams that uh, I think may be indicative of the game and mm-hmm. may uh, surprise some people. And maybe you can tell me since you've seen more of A Woman with Hollow Eyes, uh, there isn't, you know, the, the interactions with the rules are not as extensive as one might believe given the complexity of the rule system. In fact, in a, The Raven Wants What You Have, as far as I could tell, the first time a spell was cast was just the last few seconds of the end of the first episode. So you went an almost entire hour before a spell was cast um, sure. in A Raven Wants What You Have. In my limited uh, viewing of A Woman With Hollow Eyes, spells certainly were cast, but mm-hmm. probably the skill system was used more than the spell system. Uh, it has been, and I have a feeling that they've been doing a bit more magic recently. Um, Wayne has been doing a lot of building. He's been putting together all sorts of little contraptions. Uh, and uh, Calvin has been, Calvin does a lot of weaving. So I don't know. I think they actually do cast quite a few spells, um, uh, more so than just doing skills. Because uh, Kitty quite often, like whenever Kitty is doing magic, it's it's a big scene where they summon up a demon uh, or a ghost or some sort of creature, and they have a scene where, you know, they're talking with each other and working out deals and reminiscing about past jobs that they've run together. Um, so there's been quite a bit of magic, and they do interact with the rules a bit, um, but it's always been fairly light. But they're also doing um, a goofy thing because it's a Twitch channel. So if people throw bits at them, they can gain venture uh, <laughs> points for their venture. They can flip cards, uh, sooth cards, and uh, so it, it plays with the rules a little bit fast and loose because of that. Um, but you get kind of a good idea of, you know, what the numbers are and what they're doing in order to, uh, you know, increase their venture and whatnot. The second two point two episode, the second. Uh, story mode, action mode episode of The Raven Wants What You Have has a lot more spell casting, a lot more action mm-hmm. and a, I guess you call it combat. Uh, and so you see more of that, though I will say that my in my uh, uh, play test, we spend a lot more time in with sessions like session 2.1 with skills and very little magic than we did in sessions like 2.2, though we had some that were combat and you know spell slinging back and forth. Uh, one thing that I also noted from our uh, uh, playtest is, like as you describe with uh, Oma with Hollow Eyes, the Goetic magic in particular really seemed to take over the spotlight when it happened. Mm-hmm. So it was rarer, but it was so evocative and it had so many interesting hooks for the story that it really focused attention and pulled the spotlight to the Goetic uh, mage. So this might be, uh, it's a wonderful feature, but also something to watch out for that Goetics have the risk of sort of taking up too much of the narrative and the story if, if you're not careful. Yeah, and that's something I'd been thinking about. Uh, 
it, it's been entertaining in a woman with hollow eyes. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out uh, if you get into action mode, but I guess we have to wait for the rules to see how that is illustrated. So uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap up our discussion about these actual plays? I, I, I would just encourage people to go look at these actual plays. I think they mm-hmm. are indicative of the rules. While some of the rules are kind of fast and loose in some cases, I really do think these represent a very good expression of the game that I was able to do, you know, to use for the play test. I, I don't, this is not a case where the actual plays are just almost unrecognizably simplified from the core game. This is what the game was looking like as we were playing it. And mm-hmm. uh, I was happy to see that happy to see that others found that a game that looks somewhat complex uh, really can play fast at the table and facilitate rather than interrupt uh, conversation and interaction between players. Yeah. Uh, one last note. Uh, James D'Amato seems to be really into this game. Uh, there are oftentimes they are talking about how magical it is when they flip over sooth cards that are strangely uh, tied into what they're doing in the game. And it's really neat. I have had a similar experience. So I am suspicious myself that maybe there's a little bit of real magic in these sooth decks. Yeah, yeah Monty Cook says there isn't any, so I'm sure he's telling the truth. That's what they would say, though, isn't it? Who knows? This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at tex underscore red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. uh, Tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.